In the Garden of Eden, Adam's first job was to care for the garden and to use creativity to come up with names for the animals. So you could say we were created to create. And authors, deep down, I think we understand this, but the chaos of life can squelch our creativity. And sometimes we can feel like we're drowning in a sea of doubt. So how do we connect with God and continue to pursue creativity, even when it feels like life is in chaos and the world around us is in chaos? How do we get unstuck and move forward to fulfill the purpose God has created for us? We'll find out in this episode of The Christian Publishing Show, the podcast for writers who want to honor God through excellent writing. And we have a guest on the show today who is passionate about awakening people's hearts to actively pursue creativity with God. He's an author, a speaker, and executive producer of content for Wild at Heart, the ministry founded by New York Times bestselling author John Eldridge. He's also the author of three books, The Story of With, Chaos, Can't, and Waves of Creativity. Alan Arnold, welcome to The Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas. It's great to be with you today. So you've worked with a lot of authors over the years. What do you see as the number one roadblock when it comes to creativity? When I was the fiction publisher, I started Thomas Nelson Fiction and had a chance to publish over 500 novels. And that was with hundreds of writers, some first time, some New York Times bestsellers. And in the midst of that, what we would see is the writers who went the distance were the ones, honestly, who chose to co-create with God. And we can talk a little more about what I mean by that term. But the ones who were trying to come up in their own strength with or their own brilliance with the next idea, the next idea, the next idea, quickly ended up burning out over time with, with just the sense of every year I have to have a new book or every six months, and I've run out of new things in my own strength. And so the goal I had as a publisher was, how do you take that creativity and maximize it by spending more time with the creator who gave you that original desire? And there's limitless creativity on that front. But when it comes to our own creativity by ourselves, when we detach from the creator, our creativity suffers. What do you mean by co-creating with God? What does that actually look like? What I mean by co-creating with God is entering into what makes you come alive. And the reason that's important is because I believe before we were born, God infused each of us with unique interests, passions, talents, desires. Even if we're all doing the same type thing in an industry, we all have a unique variation, a unique voice, a unique way to see the world, a unique draw. And so what I believe is the more we can get in touch with what that is through intimacy, through knowing God, spending time with God, the more then that we can discover how to pursue that in its fullness, in technicolor instead of in a one-dimensional way. And, and Thomas, honestly, what I found is most people, believers who pursue their creativity with a good heart, with a good desire, the ones that try to do something for God, and like an offering. I'm going to give it my best, and then I hope God likes it. Those things never shine as bright as when people do things with God, enter into the creative process with God actively, intimately, where it's more of what I would call a dance than it is a performance. It's more of 
we're going to do this together. And so where my idea stops and yours, God continues, it's somewhat of a seamless path. It's something that is beautiful when you see it play out because all of a sudden you're tapping into kind of what's said in Jeremiah 33, 3, which is come to me and I'll show you things beyond your imagination, beyond your ability to see. I'll show you unseen unknown colors, unknown ways to solve a problem, a new way that's never been done before, if we'll pursue it with God. But when we instead say, I think I kind of got the drill down now. I know how to do this. I've done it before, and I can go into it with my eyes closed because I'm now an expert at it. That's when the danger signs should be flashing. So I'm sitting in front of a blank document in Scrivener. What does it look like to co-create with God? Yep. What I would say is it starts before you sit down with the blank document. It starts actually with a lifestyle of expectancy with God. And so you wake up on any given morning, and the first thing you do is you say, God, Father, here I am. What what are we going to do today, and how are we going to enter into the challenges, the ideas, the creativity? Give me eyes to see like you see. Give me thoughts that are your thoughts, not just my thoughts. Invite me into this as a co-creative process. And so when we start the day that way, it starts before we're sitting at a blank screen or a canvas. Then when we go into the process, and so you open it up, you're in Scrivener, there's the blank screen. What I would say is it starts with a curiosity of, God, what, what theme am I wrestling with in my journey right now of life? What idea can I not quit thinking about? What is it that if I was with a group of people, I would be talking about this, asking them questions. I'm drawn to it. And I, when I walk in a bookstore, I'm drawn to it when I go to a movie. What are those themes and ideas? Then that curiosity can lead you into how does that tie to the journey God has me on specifically right now? So your curiosity is the doorway the ideas and things you can't quit thinking about, you enter into those with God. And then you ask, in my journey right now, how am I wrestling with that theme? What is it that I want to know? What is it that stumps me? Where do I keep hungering for more? And then when you can enter into your art from that perspective, that curiosity perspective with God, it's personal, it's intimate, it's hardwired into your journey. So it's unique to you. And now when you start to ask God, let me see this in a unique way where I can not only start writing about that topic, fiction or nonfiction, any type of writing, but now help me understand the desires of the people I'm writing for. Show me their needs. Show me their curiosity. Show me their questions. And so that's what I mean by entering into it with God. It starts with an expectancy of God showing up. Your curiosity is the path you go down to explore with God. And then the actual creation of that is a co-creation act because I know when I was writing my first book, The Story of With, it's an allegory with some teaching on how to pursue your dreams with God. But on the allegory part, they were short chapters and I got into this playful routine with God where I sensed him saying, write the protagonist into a cliffhanger ending in each chapter 
to the point where you have no idea how she's going to get out of it, what comes next, how she'll shift or survive or move forward. And then we'll figure it out together. And so it might be a day, a week later, when all of a sudden I sense God showing me through a song, through a conversation, through just his revelation, through scripture, what that answer would be. And so it felt like a very intimate process of a co-authorship where I was writing beyond my ability to know what came next, and then God was helping me discover it in my life and in my writing. And so that's what it looks like when I say a dance. It's it's hard to know in some dances who's leading when it really feels like both partners are intimately involved in it. And that's what I think the creation process can be, Thomas. And so expectancy, curiosity, and then co-creation. So in some ways, it's applying the greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? The first step is loving God, and then the next step is loving your neighbor, right? Looking at the audience and asking what they want, right? Because if you want people to read the book, they need to want to read the book. You can't change people into wanting to read your book. (laughs) Right. The shift comes in between... At the beginning, it's how does this idea tie to my journey? How does this concept make my heart beat faster and come alive? So it's very personal. But then the moment you decide you're creating something that you want others to read, to buy, to spend time in, there is a shift to now how do I take that very theme, that very thing that makes me come alive and shape it and craft it to be the most practical for others, to to hit on their point of pain and the promise for their life being different because of reading it. So it's an attitude, but it's also a, an approach where you're praying and you're asking lots of questions and you're giving room for silence, which I think silence is one of the most powerful things for creativity. And it's really scary. Right? There's a, yeah. I know I tend to fill my life with lots of noise and lots of knowledge, but the reason why you come up with so many ideas in the shower is because it's a silent place, right? There's no words in hitting you in the shower. So you tend right. to get a lot of ideas there because you're giving yourself room to experience silence. (laughs) Right. And a lot of times when writers are stuck, my best advice to them is live more before you write more. Because a lot of times stuck on the canvas, stuck on the screen reflects a life that's stuck in the status quo. And so a lot of times the answer isn't just keep writing more words. It's live a little more, let God through your life give you some answers that thing can come out on the page. I think that's particularly true for nonfiction. You have to have the authority and you have to test your ideas to see if they actually work to help people, right? Because if, right. if you are if you have an idea and you're putting it straight into a book and you haven't tested that out on some disciples, right? You're wanting to disciple a bunch of strangers, but you haven't even discipled your own friends. How do you know if what you have to teach is any good? How do you know if it that's works? That's huge. Oh, that's huge. <laughs> and for me, most of my learning has been, I will teach on a topic for about two years, meaning speaking at events, small groups, one-on-one coaching, research, reading some of the great writers of history on that topic. And then based on what works, I'll have the humility to say, I thought that story was great. Everybody zoned out. But when I mention this, everybody leans in. And over time, your content is tested in the real world in real time. And that's far better than trying to write alone in your study and hope people like it. 
I think for fiction, it's a little bit different. Isaac Asimov has an excellent essay on creativity called The Eureka Phenomenon. And it's actually primarily about scientific discoveries and how a lot of the biggest scientific discoveries happen when you're doing something else, right? So the famous instance of Archimedes who discovered the principle of buoyancy while he's in the bath and then he shouted Eureka and he went running down the street. But Asimov in the essay has a dozen different examples of major scientific breakthroughs that didn't happen while the scientist was laboring. They'd been laboring, right? It's not like it hit them out of the blue. They've been working on the project, but then they're taking a break. They're doing something else. And then that breakthrough discovery came through. And then Asimov talked about how he applied that principle to his writing because he was one of the most prolific novelists of the 20th century, probably the most prolific in science fiction in terms of just total output. I mean, he just wrote so many books. And he talked about his technique for getting unstuck with writer's block. He's like, I never have a writer's block. And if I ever am temporarily stuck, I take a walk around the block or I go see a mindless movie. (laughs) And he's like, without (laughs) fail, when I get back from the movie, I force my mind to think on something else. When I get back, I have fresh ideas to move forward in the story. And he's one of the fathers of science fiction. His Absolutely. Still made into movies today and TV shows years and decades after he passed away. Well, and Thomas, you speaking of fiction, you began the podcast talking about Eden, right? And creation. And one thing that I've been fascinated by recently is this concept of is the hero's journey which is mostly what writers use, whether it's for screenplays or novels, the beats of a movie, the beats of a novel are pretty well known and documented now through the model of the hero's journey. And probably all listeners to your podcast are familiar with that on some level. But what I think happened is in Eden, the model that God created for story was different than the hero's journey. I believe, the more I've looked into this, the hero's journey is actually an Ecclesiastes journey, not an Eden journey, meaning everybody's off searching for something, they're called into the unknown, but by the end of the hero's journey, while they may have attained the elixir, whatever that is, the gold, the girl, the battle won, the catastrophe successfully averted, It's a short-term goal because if the camera kept rolling, they would still be the same person largely in the next scene. And any sequel to any movie, the characters really haven't changed that much. They just have the next adventure. And in that sense, it, it flows like an Ecclesiastes story where nothing's new under the sun. But the Eden model, I think, of telling a story, what did God create us for? And what if we started telling stories that focused more on this desire that was born in Eden with intimacy with God and what were the journeys and what were the adventures supposed to be? It's a fascinating question to ask novelists and screenplay writers, because I think what the result would be is less predictable stories where right now you or I could probably go to any movie that was coming out. And if we're students of story go, oh, this is about to happen. Oh, this is the death and rebirth. Oh, this is where the sage comes in. And so it takes away a lot of the spontaneity and unknowns of great stories. So that's just something I wanted to add in there is I think formula, even when it's something like the hero's journey, which feels real to our own life, the question is, does it feel real because we're in a fallen world 
and we've substituted what the real story could be for a model of a story that really isn't all that fulfilling in the end, even when done well. I mean, Hollywood has really been trying to get away from the hero's journey in the last couple of years. What you just expressed is very much coming out of woke Hollywood. And they're finding that the movies that are they're making that are not following the hero's journey aren't working. And I think that in the true hero's journey, the, the heroes transformed at the end. They're very different, right? Pippin is entering Return of the King, a very different person. Right. He entered Fellowship of the Ring, right? He's he's more mature. He, he's gained in character. He's gained in, in courage. And he's able to actually be useful for the plot for once. <laughs> um, and, and if you're following the hero's journey well, it's saying that we uh, can make decisions that make a difference. And when you get away from that, what often happens, at least in Hollywood, is you have these really passive protagonists that end up not being very interesting, right? Events are happening around them, but they're not making decisions that make a difference. And it's a very kind of disempowering kind of narrative because it's like, well, I guess I'm just a victim of fate, right? I'm kind of washed along in the tides of, of history and nothing I do really matters. And, and so it can be very dark, yes. and very depressing. I don't see that as Eden. <laughs> I see that as something very different. No, I don't think Hollywood, what you're describing is a move away from the hero's journey, but I don't think it's the right move. It's basically the move of somebody who has no sense of God in their worldview. And so I think they believe they're describing reality really well. We're making movies that are really reflect what the world is like, but the problem is their reflection is of a world without God. And so it is dark and hopeless and oftentimes somewhat passive. But in Eden, the biggest, I think, problem that Adam had was his passivity when it came time to make a choice. Like he basically followed Eve's lead in the story of the tree of life and tree of knowledge of good and evil. Adam was passive. And so the real journey is never going to be passive and I think what you described in Lord of the Rings works so well because of Tolkien's worldview. But I think there there is a way to return to story that reflects what could have been. And Hollywood's not doing it all that well right now. I agree. And the hero's journey is a good model. But I think if we ask God, what could a story look like if we weren't following a predictable model but following you in the story, God, it could end up being full of life and full of surprises beyond what we're getting right now. That's right, because Adam's not a very interesting character. He's not the protagonist in his own story. No. He's not even the relationship character, really. God is the protagonist of that whole narrative in the garden. And if anyone is a secondary protagonist, it's Eve, not Adam. Right. <laughs> Eve right. is making decisions. I mean, obviously Adam was with her and he's making decisions and he ultimately he has a responsibility theologically, but he's not the one protagging the story, as we would say in a, in a novel workshop. And as opposed to say Solomon, going to your Ecclesiastes, see, I think the hero's journey is a much more interesting story because Solomon is making decisions. He is doing deeds. He's making the world respond to him. He's changing the world. He's taking ground where there was no temple and he's making a temple. He's taking a nation that was torn by 60 years of civil war and he's building a nation of peace, right? He made mistakes and he learned that a lot of it was meaningless, but like he protagged his story. <laughs> he made the world respond. He definitely was doing a lot, but he didn't seem to really find ultimate satisfaction in the end, at least in what we have. But I agree with you that, yeah, Adam is not an interesting protagonist. To me, though, 
The question is, the first three verses of Genesis 1, in the beginning, we see God as creator. We see in Genesis 1-2 how the Spirit goes into the empty void where there is lack and nothing. And then in Genesis 1-3, creation begins. And so I think as creatives, if we can take the approach of we are the sons and daughters of God as creator— So now we can be co-creators with our Father and bring story and ideas and beauty and life into the empty void of this world if we do that with God actively. And if we are co-creating with Him, I think we can bring the spark of eternity into some works that otherwise would be somewhat meaningless and forgettable. And so to me, the Genesis blueprint is great. Just the first three verses give us a lot more than we would imagine when it comes to the invitation of the answer to an empty, void, oftentimes meaningless, chaotic world isn't to run or shut down. I don't know, Thomas, how many times you've heard writers say, I'll get back to my creativity when things calm down. And when I hear that, I always think, no, 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 that's the very worst thing. The very best thing is enter into the chaos and transform it through your stories, through your art, through your beauty, as God did in Genesis 1. Yeah, you're talking about bringing God into your writing and go back to fiction, right? A lot of authors try to bring God into the story. And I've spent some time thinking about why that often doesn't work and why it does work in Narnia, right? So Christians in general really resonate and they feel like Aslan was done right. And I think the reason why people like Aslan, while they don't like God in a lot of the more modern books, is that in Narnia, Aslan is the antagonist most of the time. (laughs) So the children want something, and Aslan is getting in their way because he wants something different, (laughs) right? And at one point, he attacks the children, right? What is it in The Horse and His Boy? He actually attacks Erebus and scratches her on her back, physically attacks her. And they're wanting to do something, and he's doing something else, or he's doing his own thing, and they have no idea what he's doing, right? He's right, the, the right. Not safeness and not tameness is a really key part of Aslan's character, and it makes him really interesting, because how do you handle a Mary Poppins, right? How do you handle a Mary Sue who's practically perfect in every way? You have to make her the antagonist, right? She wants the exact opposite of what Mr. Banks wants. Mr. Yes. Banks wants an ordered life. This woman who's practically perfect, if she wanted to help him have an ordered life, the story wouldn't work. But the fact yes. that she wants him to have more chaos and more interaction with his unruly small children, and that she's ultimately, he's the protagonist, she's the antagonist, that that works better. And I think that modern Christianity is uncomfortable with the idea of God as the antagonist. We want God to be Santa Claus. We want him to be Father Christmas, right? Father Christmas comes and he helps the children, right? He's like, oh, here's a sword to keep you safe. Here's a horn to keep you safe. Here's a vial to heal the injured. But Father Christmas is not an interesting character in the Narnia stories. It's a fun little vignette, but he's not nearly as interesting as Aslan, who is helping in some ways, but hindering in others. I totally love what you're saying and agree with you. Would you say that that is because we have tried to tame God because we're uncomfortable with the wildness of God? And so that plays out in the stories, the songs of the church, the stories from believers that we're trying to make God safe and we're trying to make God palatable or just a God that gives us what we want? I think that's part of it. And I think more deeply, 
we don't have a good theology of suffering. We see suffering as something to be avoided, whereas God often sees suffering as something to bring us closer to him, right? So what yeah. does Aslan do to Susan to try to bring her back, right? He allows all of Susan's family to die, bringing Susan into this terrible. Obviously, we don't know what ultimately happens with Susan, but Lewis writes about it some. And Susan goes through this really difficult time, which is Aslan's way of trying to bring her back to Narnia, right? It's like right. suffering can be used for good, which is, I think, a more Catholic view of suffering. I remember talking with a Catholic friend, and, and she was like, never let good suffering go to waste. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, look at Eustace uh, in, you know, the story where he actually went to the Dragon Island and became a dragon, right? Mm-hmm. And that was that suffering and that hardship was the turning point for his transformation through suffering. That's right. And so, yeah, exactly. So connected with that is sin, right? So we have we live in a broken world where there's suffering. There's ambient suffering, right? Thorns and thistles. It's a curse by God that we would suffer while we work. But there's also sin, right? The things that we do to disobey God. And you see in the Narnia stories, the children disobeying from time to time and suffering the consequences of that, right? Jill Pohl didn't follow the signs and it caused one problem after another. Right, right. And he allowed, Lewis in writing stories, allowed the characters to sin and allowed them to suffer because of that. And that is a scary thing for a modern writer to do, to allow the protagonist to sin and then force them to suffer because of their sin. Usually it's the antagonist sinning against the protagonist. It's the villain doing the evil things to the hero. But in the Narnia books, for the most part, the villains aren't really the ones harming the heroes. The heroes are harming themselves, right? That's good. Was it really the White Witch's fault that Edmund fell? It's like, well, kind of. But really, that was on him. Yeah. (laughs) He chose, right? She led him into temptation, but he chose to eat the food, and he chose to portray his brothers. And his reconciliation had nothing to do with defeating the White Witch. He was fully reconciled, and the White Witch was at her peak power, right? It wasn't about defeating her because she wasn't the problem. The problem was inside of his own heart. That's good. That's good. So back to talking about creativity, another challenge that a lot of authors face is that the walk of creation, especially the writing and being creative, can be a lonely walk, right? So back to Lewis, right? Lewis had a group of inklings, Tolkien and others who are his friends. What advice do you have for somebody who feels really alone? They feel like they're the only one who gets it. What should they do? Well, I think it's twofold. We talked about the greatest command, love God, love others. And I think in writing, we have to hold on to that. And so the first thing I talk to writers about is when you co-create with God, when you enter into your creativity, your story actively with God, first of all, you're not alone. I get that it may feel alone, but you're not. And you have to get past feelings. And so you have to claim the reality of, God, we're doing this together. And it's not any more than about daily word count. That's not how you measure success. It's fine if you want to have a daily word count. But the measure of success is, am I creating with God and am I experiencing him actively as I create? The second part, though, is with others. We need a group of what I would call wild, creative, bohemian fellowship of friends who are with us, who can pull us up when we're down And when we're a little too ego-driven, they can pull us back down to earth. Like They can do both, but we need that group. It doesn't have to be a large group, Thomas. It can be two, three people. If you start with one, that's awesome. That's more than most, so begin with one. But 
if you can have a group and they don't even have to all be writers. So if you're a writer, you may have in your group a painter, you may have a chef, you may have a barista, you may have a coach, but find a fellowship of people who love to create with God and regularly let them pour into you and you pour into them. So what does that mean? What does it mean to pour into someone or to be poured into? Well, yeah. What I think it means is a regular time to get together. If you're in the same community or city, great. Do it in person if you can. But nowadays, it's never been easier to do it by Zoom if you need to. So find a time where weekly you can get together with two, three people, one if you have one, and talk about things that bring life to you. I'm reading a book by Madeline LaEngle, so Walking on Water. And so I'm reading that book and I'm sharing it with people who I regularly pour into because that's pouring into me. She's pouring into me long after she's entered the kingdom through her writing on creativity. And I'm sharing that with others. And we're asking each other questions based on that book. Then we're talking about a writer the other day asked me in my group, I I feel like I've lost my voice and I don't know what I need to say anymore or how to say it. Another has been talking to me about since the pandemic from years ago, it feels like the world has grown more chaotic and their tank has grown more empty. And for the first time in their life, they just don't feel creative. So it's those kind of conversations about, wow, have you seen that new TV show? Have you watched this? Have you read this? What did you think when C.S. Lewis said that to, I just don't feel like I have what it takes anymore. And I need somebody who believes in me to talk me off the ledge of saying that's it. So it's pouring into, it's being poured into. And I think when we find that community, and it can be an email, a text, a voicemail, coffee together, a Zoom call, but you need those few people who get you and who get that creating with God is a beautiful thing that the world needs more of. I think in person is really important. There's something about physical touch that is really key, right? You can't raise right. an elder of a church without physical touch, right? You have to lay hands on. <laughs> like, I don't understand why that's important, but I do, at least from my own experience, see that it is important. That Zoom is useful, right? And I've got Zoom groups. I have coaching groups. I'm not saying it's useless, but I am saying that there's something special about in-person. And something special about making the sacrifices. People are like, oh, it's inconvenient. I have to drive a long time. I've got to do all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, but community is worth making sacrifices for. And we need to have that worldview. That community is more valuable than the inconveniences that it takes to have community. I agree. And I think we all intuitively feel the need to be poured into. But when you're part of a community, you have to remember being poured into is part of it. But part of it is sometimes it's not about you at all. You're pouring into that other person and you do get a lot out of that. But I think it's that ability to go, this is not meetings just for you each time. It's for each other. And like any good relationship, sometimes you give more than you get. And sometimes it's all about pouring into you, but, but you have to be in it for the long haul. Sometimes helping others is more encouraging than actually being encouraged. A lot of authors like, I want to write a book to be encouraged, but it's like, think about the ways that you're actually encouraged in real life. Typically 
It's in person. It's in a small group setting or with a group, small group of friends. And some of the most encouraging things are when you said something that really blessed them or you just listened and they feel better and you feel better having had listened. Like it wasn't about reading a book that had an encouraging story about someone's cat who got better from being sick. Right. Right. <laughs> like that's not really encouraging. In fact, that can be discouraging because if your cat get, is sick and then it goes on to die, you're like, well, then why did my cat recover? And now you've got this crisis of faith. You know, it's like we're suffering in the world. Like death comes for us all. It's just a matter of time. Even Lazarus ended up dying. <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying about community, I think another element of that is having your intellectual diet fit the work that you're doing. So like professional athletes, depending on the kind of sport they're doing, will have a diet designed to help them with that sport, right? Somebody who is a wrestler or a power lifter is going to have a very different diet than somebody who's running a marathon, right? For one, you want to be big and strong. The other one, you want to be lean and fast. There's some principles that they both follow, right? And some foods that they both follow and same foods that they both avoid. There's other foods that one can eat and not the other. And so when you're wanting to write a book, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, but from my perspective, there's the proteins and the fats and the carbs, and you want to be reading in your genre. You need to know what the conversation is around the book if it's nonfiction. And if it's fiction, you need to know what the tropes are, know what readers are expecting. And then you also need to be reading books on craft, (laughs) reading books on how to communicate better, reading books on how to be more influential or how to put together a better scene. And the combination of those two kinds of books helps. But I imagine there's other kinds of books that help for a good, well-rounded diet. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I do think if you are a writer and you're not finding time to read, especially in the areas that you're writing in, you're simply too busy to write. Like you don't start writing and you're too busy to read. You have to be a reader who finds time to write. And to me, that's incredibly important. And yes, read what's in your area. But I would also add, Thomas, like I'm a big believer that the very best thing you can start with are things that focus you on who God is, how he created the world, why, and to give you an interpretation and a sense of the greater reason we're all here. And so to me, some people call it quiet time, devotional time. To me, it's not quiet and it's not devotional makes it more trite sounding than it is. Like to me, it's it's what energizes my soul. And so however you find time to begin your day or spend time in your day first with God, to me, that sets everything else in motion in its proper place. And craft is super important. As a writer, you have to know your craft, but the problem is You can go into any bookstore or you can be a voracious reader and you'll soon discover there's a lot of well-crafted crap out there. I mean, it's really well-crafted and it has nothing to say. But from a craft standpoint, it's been put together the best it can be. And so craft alone isn't enough, but craft is necessary to be able to excel at what you do. And so to me, yes, you learn the craft. You start your day with God, you immerse yourself, you want to have union with God. That's the goal. And what you give birth to from that, I think, is what can change the world. And I would just add, I don't know if you would agree with this or disagree with this, but one of the problems with immersing yourself too much in the current 
trends of what's happening right now is I think whatever you're creating, it can start to feel too similar. So it's a baby step away maybe of what's being done. And while you need to know what's being done, I think some of the best creativity is when the person risks the new and the unproven. And so like at a writer's conference, you know, there'll be a round table with editors and there'll be a room full of writers. And the question always to the editors is, okay, what's the new trend or what's what's the in thing right now? What do you want more of? And the problem I think with that is it's rear view mirror publishing because it looks at what has worked, but before the shack, the shack didn't work. Before Narnia, Narnia didn't work. And so if everyone is trying to tap into what's the hot trend right now, at best their book is going to feel like a lot of other books. But for the writer who's willing to say, actually, God's created me in a unique way. I've practiced the discipline and the craft of writing. I read a lot and I'm in union with God. Now from that place, I want to bring something new into the world that maybe is a little hard to define at first. Maybe it takes a little bit of time to catch on or gain traction, but when it does, it's going to be the very thing at future writers conference, the editors are saying, we want more of this, which wouldn't have existed if that writer had listened to the editors the year before. And Frank Peretti I think is a great example of that. Like when he wrote This Present Darkness, there was no demand for that type of novel. When he first published it, it didn't do much at all. It sat on the shelf. The bookstores were returning the book. And I believe it was about a year later when Amy Grant started mentioning his book in her concerts that all of a sudden people started ordering it, reading it, finding it. And then Everybody was saying, we need more Frank Peretti's. We need more books like this, spiritual warfare, supernatural suspense. So a lot of times to be the forerunner, I think you have to know what's happening in the world, but also follow your own beat of the drum that you hear that nobody else hears yet. I think another important distinction is understanding what your goal is. Are you writing because this is your job and you're trying to provide for your family? In which case, trying to write that unique once in a generation book that's a bestseller because yeah every 10 years or so there's some lightning bolt out of a clear blue sky that nobody saw but for 10 years tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of authors were trying to write that book and their books were not selling at all (laughs) meanwhile other authors are writing the books that people wanted to read and they were putting food on the table and putting the kids through college and so if you're gonna only swing for home runs you have to be okay with a lot of strikeouts and you have to have another way to feed your family. And and what you'll find with a lot of those authors is that they either had money (laughs) from something or they had a spouse covering the bills because I wouldn't encourage anybody to have that strategy if they're trying to provide for their family with their writings. There's more lottery ticket winners. Seriously, there's more people every year who win millions of dollars in the lottery than people that have a brand new book that no one saw coming, bolt out of the sky, bestseller, right? Like, and I don't advise buying lottery tickets either. <laughs> right. Well, I, and I'm not saying people should bet the farm on a book if they've got no way to pay the mortgage the next month. If you're writing as a way to bring in income and that's 
and you've got to write what people want and what the de- where the demand is. I get it. But what I'm saying is there is a different path. And like with Frank Peretti, he worked at a ski shop and he and his wife, they were married, but they were living, I think, in like a mobile home. They weren't swinging for the fences, meaning this is our get rich quick idea. He was just writing what God put on his heart. And and so if it worked, it worked. If it didn't, it didn't. But his goal was just to, to write where God led and he wasn't counting on it to pay the bills. And so what I think another path is for some people is, yeah, if you have to have a full-time job to be able to write where your passion is, I would rather see you do that, but have those books be the thing that you feel like you were put on this earth to write, and let's see where God takes that. The pressure's not on for it to pay the bills, rather than going, I'm going to make my writing into a functional, practical thing that... It may not even be what I most want to write, but I'm going to use my writing to earn a living. Both are viable. Both are good. I'm more interested in the people that say, I'm going to go down the road less traveled with my writing, and I'm going to write books that that I can't not write. And I, the reason I like that the most is because those books to me seem to stand the test of time where the others are a little bit more predictable and forgettable even if they do pay the bills. And so it is two ways to look at it, but I don't think you ought to swing for the fences with no way to pay your bills. Like that's that's not practical. And you shouldn't feel bad if you're paying the bills with your books and you're not trying to create a classic that's an enduring hit. Not every book has to be a classic. Not every sermon has to be something people can't forget for the rest of their lives. There's something to be said about eating a good meal that's satisfying in the moment but it doesn't keep you full all day, right? Eventually, you're going to have to eat another meal later on. And if you're writing the best books you can, that's okay. There's a, a passage in Ecclesiastes, I think, that really speaks to this. Solomon says, Plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon, for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another or maybe both, right? So planting, that's a high-risk, high-reward, right? If the weather's good and things come in, it's a big return. But if the weather's bad weeds get in, you may get nothing. You stay busy all afternoon, right? You're a cobbler, you're making shoes. That's the day-to-day reliable stuff, but it's never going to make you rich, right? But you don't know what the future is going to hold. You don't know where the rewards are going to come from. And if you are going to swing for the fences, you need to have something to do in the afternoon (laughs) to to cover the bills. Totally, totally. And I think that my passion and invitation to listeners would be if you are writing to pay the bills, and I do that, I mean, I I have a freelance coaching job where I help people with their manuscripts, I write back cover copy, I help them get their novel or their nonfiction finished, and that's a job that I hope brings a lot of help to people, but it's not my passion book that I'm writing for myself. So I get revenue from helping people write in a way that pays the bills, and I hope people find time to write the book that they feel like even if only 500 people buy it initially, or even if it doesn't sell well in the first few years or ever, that they still get that one done. Because ultimately, I think if they don't, they've had a really practical career with writing, but they maybe never, you don't have to call it swinging for the fences, but they never stepped in with God for the book they 
it was their passion project. And so I would hope they at least can do both. Like, yep, find the things that pay the bills and do that well. And what book were you uniquely put on this world, in this earth to write? And make time for that as well. Because like Van Gogh, you may not ever see the fruit of that while you're alive. And then years later, decades later, those paintings are some of the most cherished in the world. So it may not happen on the timetable that we expect. And doing those base hit books helps you grow in your craft to then better be able to swing for the fences. We had Jerry Jenkins on a few episodes back and we were talking about Left Behind, how it sold millions and millions of copies. And he would get interviewed by journalists. They're like, how are you an overnight success? And he's like, what are you talking about? This is my 110th book. <laughs> I, read right. I wrote 100 books, not read, wrote 100 books before this. Right. And those books, some of them were hits. Some of them were, you know, kind of middle of the road books. He wrote a lot with people where he would tell a story of some celebrity to tell their memoir, help them craft their story where, you know, it's it guaranteed base hit, right? The person's a famous athlete or whatever. And so, you know, you're going to sell 20,000 copies, but you know, you're not going to sell a hundred thousand copies. And right. he got better and better at the craft until finally he wrote, you know, a big smash hit, but he didn't see, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think he saw left behind as like his magnum opus. He kept writing and he has books that he's come out with more recently that I think are more kind of like what you're talking about. Like, this is the one, right? Of course, it's also like the most recent one's always the most special to you. So there may be some bias there. <laughs> it's like, uh, I like to think that each uh, podcast episode is the best one I've ever done. Although sometimes that's definitely not the case. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I want just briefly to hear about your books because you've been writing about creativity for quite some time. Yeah, Thomas. So the first book I wrote is The Story of Wit, W-I-T-H, and it really is an allegory with a few teaching moments or a few thoughts around it that help the reader understand how to pursue what they love actively and intimately with God. People have described it a little bit like Alice in Wonderland and The Matrix kind of fused together in story where it's this surreal, fantastical story that allows you to see the wildness and the creativity of God and what you are called to step into. So that's the first book. And I really find that super helpful for people in their creativity, regardless of what type of art they pursue. The second chaos can't is really about why are we so plagued with chaos in this world? Why does it tend to come against our creativity? Is there an intention behind that? And how do we actually start to see creativity and chaos as God does and how our creative gifting can actually be an antidote to the chaos? So rather than wait it out or hunker down or fear it, we can actually use our God-given creativity as a way to push back the chaos in the world with beauty, life, and order. And so that, I think, especially in the last few years, has been super encouraging to people who feel like, if I could only have a less chaotic day, I'm overwhelmed, I'm burnt out, I'm weary, but I want to create, this may be an antidote to that for you. I want to be the protagonist in my own story. I want my actions to impact the world rather than the world impacting my actions. Well said. Yes. Just one other thing I just wanted to offer for people is if they would like a short dose of daily encouragement on God and creativity I have a daily email. It's free. 
you can sign up for it on my website with Alan, W-I-T-H-A-L-L-E-N.com. And Monday through Friday, you'll get an email that just is the kind of thing you can read in literally 30 seconds or a minute, but it looks at a facet of your creativity through the lens of what God is inviting you into. We'll have links to those books in the show notes for this episode that you can find at christianpublishingshow.com. And we'll also have a link to withallen.com. Alan Arnold, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. Thank you, Thomas. I've loved the conversation. Our featured patron today is Brian Timothy Mitchell, author of Infernal Fall. Daniel Strong falls into Dante's Inferno and somehow survives. A demon offers to guide him to Satan so he can bargain for his freedom. Although reluctant, Daniel follows the monster. With each step he takes towards the bottom of hell, he feels more and more hopeless. Will he succumb to the lies that drag him down, or will he find there's another way? Brian Timothy Mitchell, thank you so much for being a patron of the Christian Publishing Show, and thank you to all of the patrons who help keep this podcast on the air. The Christian Publishing Show is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. The blog post is by Shauna Lettler, and the producer is Lori Christine. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., your host. And to find the blog version of this episode, visit christianpublishingshow.com slash 131. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.